0: Hey there, and welcome to episode four of the Beneath the Stats podcast, produced by Wicked Loco North Boston. I'm your host, Rob McKittrick. Creator of SEN America, Christopher Tyler will be joining me in the second half of this podcast to discuss some Celtics. But first, I'm pleased to welcome in sports psychologist, Greg Carton. Greg, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Rob. It's great, uh, great to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: Greg owns his sports psychology business called GC3 Performance and Consulting, and he's worked with a variety of athletes, um, especially golfers such as PGA Pro Golfer John Curran, so you should definitely check out his website. Um, but So Greg, we can start off in a lot of different areas, and I think the mental side of sports I think is, is, is fascinating for anyone who's, who's really a sports fan. Um, I wanted to start off with a quote that I saw from your website, because I think this summarizes uh, your philosophy pretty well. So let me re- read the quote, and, I'll, and then I'll ask about your thoughts about it. So on your website, you say, trying to eliminate negative thoughts is at best an impossible task. We as human beings all experience negativity, doubt, and anxiety. Fighting with these thoughts and attempting to force them away only adds energy to them and becomes the actual cause of the anxiety, not the thought itself. So I thought I wanted to start here, Greg, because I know, uh, you know, if people don't know, I, I worked with you a little bit um, when I was in college over, over my summer when I, was, when I was interested in sports psychology, and this seemed to be a theme that you focused on. I'm not trying to get rid of these negative thoughts. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think my approach um, sort of mental toughness or whatever you want to call it, or having a good, strong mental game is not so much uh, our ability to control our thoughts or or to block certain thoughts out, but it's to understand our thoughts in ways to where we're not so controlled by them. Meaning everybody has negative thoughts. Everybody has positive thoughts. We're, We're sort of... We struggle in our attempt to control what we think, yet we've been told for so long that to perform at a high level, you can't think negatively. So what happens is when most athletes have these thoughts, they try to stop them or block them out, they're unsuccessful, and then they think that something's wrong with them. And that is, like in that quote, where all the tension comes from. Our our attempt to rid ourselves of certain types of thinking as opposed to uh, more of an acceptance model where or an observation model where we're watching what we think, we're understanding a little bit better that thoughts have no power uh, as long as we're not fighting them or fighting ourselves. And have you
0: found that when people do accept these thoughts, that um, you know, you may acknowledge that I am nervous in this situation or I don't want to screw up. Um, You know, whether it's working with golfers, I know golf is such a huge uh sport with sports psychology. Have you found that it has uh, increased performance?
1: Yeah, and it's again, it's not so much that we're looking to increase performance because, again, that's a, also can be misleading. I think trying to help athletes achieve a certain level of freedom when they're competing is really sort of the angle that I like to take. And, you know, usually if you're competing with freedom and you're not causing yourself tension, uh, you do perform at a higher level. Um, And also substituting maybe the word acceptance for observation. So I think acceptance sometimes can be a little bit uh, too passive for athletes. Um, You know, learning how to observe our thoughts and not do anything. um, There's some activity just in that, right? Doing nothing sometimes is the hardest thing that athletes can do. So if they're afraid of doing nothing because they feel like they're being lazy or not, nothing's happening, they're not taking action, you know, you make that point that, hey, man, sometimes doing nothing is, is really the hardest thing you can do as, as athletes because we're always trying to control our environment, we're always trying to do something, trying to get better. Um, so observing those thoughts, creating freedom by not responding to what we're thinking, and usually that turns into, you know, heightened performance.
0: Yeah, and one area I wanted to discuss with you which, which relates to that is you – know, I know you've talked about peak performance and flow um, or, or to, however you want to kind of describe it is – you know I think everyone who has played a sport knows the moment when they're in the zone, when they're hot, yep. when everything is going right. And from what I've heard from you in the past, it seems like in that moment there's not a lot of thought going on. Uh, everything just seems to be clicking. Mm-hmm. Is is that what you're trying to replicate, or what what is that? Um, what's what's going on there when you, when athletes are performing so well, and it just yeah. seems like everything's working?
1: So in those situations, in those flow states, um, what's actually ex- we're experiencing is we're so engaged in, in what what we call our direct experience, what's happening um, that. While we're we're still thinking, those thoughts aren't registering so much. So you know we sort of lose all uh, our ego. Sort of, we're able to step aside. Um, We lose track of time. Uh, Time either seems to stand still or or things seem to occur rather quickly. Um, And we're so engaged in what we're doing that really nothing else matters. Now, you ask anybody who's achieved you know those flow states, and you ask, well, how'd you get into that state, and the unanimous answer is I don't know. And so in our attempt to achieve or recreate that state, we actually push ourselves farther and farther away because what we're doing is we're, we're ramping up our thought process. We're trying to do something. So the, the skill or what we try to say to athletes is it's an attempt to try not to try, right? And that's what we're trying to do in those situations. We're allowing those situations to occur by not trying, and it's a really difficult concept, um, but I don't know anybody that's tried to achieve a flow state and has succeeded. That they happen sort of organically by our engagement in what we're doing.
0: Yeah, and you know, one thing that a lot of statisticians will talk about is the hot hand fallacy, which I'm sure sports psychologists, um, people are interested in psychology, and, and appreciate the impact or or the effect of the mind on performance. Um, Probably would not agree with, but you know, for those who don't know, the hot hand fallacy. Basically, they say, which I've always disagreed with, and I've taken some stats courses, is that if you're if you're playing basketball and you make three or four in a row, um, it's not that you're actually hot. It's just that it's a random sequence, and that you are bound to make a few in a row um, just because of the percentages. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're talking about in terms of a fleek or uh, a flow or a state of peak performance, where something else is going on than just some random occurrence of of uh, times where you do well. Uh, I, I guess, you know, so I guess what are your thoughts on the hot hand fallacy? Yeah, I mean, I, I would disagree with that totally in that there, there are clear,
1: you know, examples of athletes who have experienced what we would call flow state or being in the zone. Um, and it's that, you know, what's happening in those moments is, again, we're not trying to create that, but, you know, we've de- we're developing a level of confidence to where we're not actively focusing on technical thought, right? It's all about sort of responding or being spontaneous, um, using our sort of hot cognition um, to just be in that moment and and respond to whatever's happening uh, regardless of what what we're thinking. And those are really, you know, there's been numerous examples of that throughout time in in all sports, really. Um, I think – I don't know if any of you, you know, if you've watched that, uh, the movie Free Solo.
0: Yes, I watched it yesterday.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the the ultimate example of sort of this constant flow state. And there's been a lot of research done on extreme athletes and how, to, you know, we, we can approach creating that by uh, creating environments where if we don't succeed, the alternative is death, right? I mean, this is what extreme athletes experience. Um, And in that moment, they have no choice but to be so engaged. And, you know, Alex Honnold sort of gives us a fantastic three and a half hour sort of example of being in flow where he's just moving and and responding. And he's he's prepped a certain way to where he's allowed himself to just flow with what's happening and and not think so much um, or at least not respond to what he's thinking. I can guarantee you you know, because he is a human being, his thoughts are occurring, you know, in in those moments as well. But he's not responding because he's so engaged in what what he's doing in the moment.
0: Yeah, it was actually one of my questions I had for you was about that documentary because I saw it. um, For those who don't know, basically professional rock climber, um, free soloed, uh, so climbed up this big boulder rock, El Capitan in Yosemite National Park in California, um, without a rope. And it's very dangerous, any sort of uh, change or a mistake and he's falling and and he's dying. Um, yeah, again, you know, you kind of talked about it there, but you know, what was your reaction to, I assume you watched the documentary?
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen it a few times and it's, you know, I've, I've known about Alex Honnold for quite a while and, you know, fascinated by climbers and, and sort of their approach to their sport. Um, all extreme athletes really. Um, I think what he does is probably the most extreme. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, he, in his trial sort of climbed where he's using ropes, he actually falls a couple of times, which is, you know, you would think, you know, one slip up without a rope like that, where he fell, he, like you said, he'd be dead. Um, and not to give the movie away, obviously we know what the ending is, but there are times, you know, where he just doesn't feel right, right? Where there was a moment in the movie where he stops, and it was a really good example that, you know, he's human, even though he doesn't seem like it, that, you know, in my interpretation of that moment was, you know, things were a little bit different than his prep was, and it caused him to think a little bit too much, and he chose not to to keep going at that moment.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, just wa- watching that documentary was fascinating. Again, it was on National Geographic um, last night, strongly recommend um, for anyone interested in sports or sports psychology or just how to achieve peak performance um, you know I don't know what exactly you would call his performance but I, I do think you can say that you know he was showing um, you know that he was clutch in a way because you know at the at, at his very peak at when the time he needed to do it the most um, he didn't make any mistakes you talked about how uh, he did fall off when he had the rope but when he actually went without the rope everything he did was on point in, and you know, I think the uh, we're not giving it away by saying that he survives, right? Um, so I, I did want to talk about the clutch gene, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It is. What do you make of the clutch gene? Does it exist? Because it does seem like, for example, guys like Tom Brady, um, when the moment is at its highest, he performs at its best. Michael Jordan, we whereas other guys, you know, quote can choke when when the moment is too large. Is there such thing as a clutch gene?
1: I mean, it's hard to tell, and, and those are those are good examples, obviously, but th- those are the best. Ever, right? And there's so few examples of those guys. Um, there are plenty of athletes who have performed exceptionally well when it's mattered the most uh, that don't get the same kind of recognition um, and probably because it doesn't happen uh, continuously. And that, that, that's more what's you know, so interesting to me. And Jordan and, and Brady and, and other athletes like that have also failed at times too but I think their percentage of success is so great. Um, and they provide, and Tiger Woods, you know, in golf is sort of the best example, I think. Um, guys won almost 25% of his tournaments, which is unheard of. There, there's something going on there. And it's, you know, but unfortunately, I don't think it's something that can be taught. It's something that just happens and it can be admired. Um, but I think it's dangerous sometimes to try to teach athletes to try to be like somebody else. Because the second we're doing that, we're resisting ourselves. And that is the cause of all tension, is this resistance to ourselves. And and I talk about that with golfers a lot. Oh, I'd love to think like this guy. I always love to think like that guy. Well, the second we do that, we're resisting what we're thinking and feeling. And that can be really problematic for athletes.
0: Do you think that, aren't there certain athletes that you've had that you've dealt with? Um- you because know, it does seem like some guys uh, respond to adversity well. Some guys don't. Some guys get the yips. Um, for example, you know, I don't know if you remember Daniel Bard was a Red Sox relief pitcher who was really going to be the next Jonathan Papelbon, and you know, one day he could not find his control, yeah. and his whole career was over. And then you look at guys like Jared Salta a former Red Sox catcher who couldn't throw it back to the pitcher's mound, or John Lester can't throw it over to first base. Um, it, it just seems like some guys. The mental part of the game gets in their head; they can never fix it. While other, with, while other people can. Have you found a, a pattern, or is there a reason, or um, some sort of explanation for why some people get the quote the yips so badly, and other others can? Yeah, you know, it's a great
1: example, and you know, it's sort of eluded athletes for for years, and how we try to fix something, right? Like, well, something's broken; I can't throw to first anymore. Something's wrong, so the journey those athletes take down that road to fix something, again, represents this total resistance. And I'm not saying to go out there and just sort of accept that you're going to do that. But in a way that can help to sort of free athletes up a little bit. This idea that maybe I'll do this sometimes. Maybe I'll have that experience of, you know, not being able to get it back to, to first base or to, you know, as a catcher to get it back to the pitcher and it's going to be embarrassing and I'm going to look silly, but, the more I'm trying to sort of fix that because a fix doesn't exist. Um, Because again, you ask these athletes that have gone through these, what look like horrible situations. And again, it happens a lot in golf um, on short putts. The way that they've worked themselves out of it is simply by being with it as opposed to, I need to fix something. So you can do all the work you want practicing, you know, like, after practice, practicing those throws, practicing those putts. But nothing matters until you get into competition, right? That's, that's the real sort of work. And what happens often is athletes will fix that physical skill in practice and just assume that when they get to competition, it's going to work out just fine. And when it doesn't, now they've made things worse. Um, you know, a lot of the golfers we work with and who struggle with that, and again, it's a really common thing, Um, One, understanding how common it is sometimes can help. And two, knowing that there's not a whole lot you need to do to sort of work yourself out of it. And and the more you start to fight that and the more you really work on it and grind, uh, sometimes the worse it gets. And it can be a really slippery slope. And so I think the guys that don't come back from that are those who are constantly searching for answers, constantly trying to fix something that's not broken.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just so fascinating. I think that anyone who doubts the the impact of the mind, um, you know, on, on psychology, on performance, especially in sports, but really in, in everyday life, is, is ridiculous. And you see these elite athletes, the best at their sport, who can't throw the ball to first base, like Chuck Knobloch. and it's it's truly fascinating to see. Yeah,
1: I mean, there are physical. There's something called a focal dystonia. A lot of musicians experience it where they played this same piece of music over and over and over and over again, and something sort of trips in their brain and they're unable to sort of get back to that. Um, and those are really serious cases. But, you know, for athletes, the I mean, there there probably have been cases where it's been that serious, but I haven't seen one yet.
0: Um, I wanted to transition to a couple other, uh, I think, interesting sports themes or um, instances where it seems like sports psychology and, and the mind has a real impact on performance. Um, you know, one thing I've always noticed is, is the importance of home field advantage. And it seems like it changes on the sport. Um, you know, for example, baseball, it doesn't seem to have as much of an impact. I don't know about the stats, but just from uh, anecdotally or watching it, it seems like the NBA basketball is, is always really big. Football is pretty big. Um, it's interesting to me that you would think that athletes at the highest level, it wouldn't really matter where they're playing and the impact of the crowd. What do you make of home field advantage and why teams are so successful um, at their home court and why it's just the winning percentage in the playoffs especially is is off off the charts for the home team?
1: Yeah, I don't know so much that it's the crowds make a difference, you know, like the the environment's different, so that makes it – I think it's all the little logistical stuff like the travel, hotel, uh, being away from home. There's a little bit of this lack of comfort that – doesn't take much of it to, to make a difference in how someone prepares and gets ready to play. Um, so I do think there's something to be said about that. Um, but I also think that there's, I don't say just as many examples, but also examples of athletes who the pressure is completely off playing away because they don't feel like they have to perform in front of their own fans. Um, it happens a lot in Boston, right? right. Where, where guys struggle when they come here and you would think that the home field advantage would be a fantastic advantage, but Sometimes the pressure is too much to play in front of them. Um, I think it really comes down to the individual, the athlete and how they choose to deal with it. the, the objective in all sports and the, the playing fields never change. I mean, baseball, there's different sort of dimensions, I guess. So you could say that, but um, hockey, you know, basketball, football, <laughs> you know, all the, everything's exactly the same. Um, and I think, you know, it's up to the individual athlete to sort of choose to put that aside and understand that regardless of where they're playing, the objective doesn't change. Um, I do think, though, it can go both ways where you feel like you need to perform in front of your home crowd. You want to do well for somebody else. Um, and when you're on the road, you don't. So, you know, I, I haven't dug so deep into some of the studies and understood sort of that home field advantage as much, but I, I do know. Um, you know from experience and talking to athletes there are almost just as many that feel that pressure uh reverse
0: yeah and do you think um a disruption in routine would be another possible thing i know uh you know as a when, when you work with golfers i always feel like routines are key when you're shooting free throws um just having that pattern do you think that would have any impact
1: yeah totally i mean it's just those little details you know that guys just sort of get used to in certain situations that they like to try to recreate and on the road those don't exist so that absolutely can, can play a part for sure.
0: Uh, couple more questions for you and then I'll let you go. But again, thanks. Thanks for hopping on the podcast. It's been really interesting. Um, you know, I don't know if you followed the Celtics at all this year. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of internal uh, turmoil, a lot of chemistry issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, they had a lot of expectations going into the season and again, they've played okay, but they haven't, that the talent has not met the expectations. Um, when you look at, uh, you know, the idea of chemistry versus talent and how important team chemistry is in liking each other, um, how big of, of, a, of a factor is that in team success? It's 100% because
1: there's been plenty of teams that have failed who have been, you know, talent-wise have been fantastic. And there's also been examples of teams that, you know, weren't so talented but had such great sort of team chemistry or played for uh, – you know, a specific goal in mind, and they all sort of rallied behind that. Um, You know, I think you look at some of those great, you know, Chicago Bulls teams with Jordan and Rodman and Pippen and all those guys, and, you know, I don't think anybody could have coached those guys. You know, I think they had a special coach, and and that's why they had been, were so successful. Um, Same thing, then you look at the Patriots, who have had, you know, you would argue, I don't want to say marginal talent, but compared to the league, you know, maybe not as talented as some of the other teams, they just keep winning, and I think it's it, it's all that comes down to that chemistry, and a lot of it falls on the coach, um, the athletes' buy-in, and because there's been there have been plenty of examples over the years of, of fantastically talented teams who who never do anything.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh... It's, it's always an interesting thing and you're you're spot about the Patriots I mean the Patriots success has been so long and you're right I mean they've had Brady and Belichick but the talent you know in defense the receivers it's not like they've had superior talent to everyone in the rest of the league so it really does say a lot about the organization um, but I did want to uh, ask you one last question before we talk about what what you've been doing lately uh, with your business and I know you're not a huge um, you know, fan of, of self-promotion or kind of, uh, talking about, you know, great things you've done, but do you have a specific, uh, success story or a specific instance where you felt proud of, of, uh, how you helped an athlete grow, whether it was one of the professional golfers, whether it was a specific instance with someone else, do you have something that, um, you thought, wow, I actually did make a difference and this. This was very uh, rewarding.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, you know there are the success stories of athletes who achieve you know certain you know goals and they're, they're happy with what they've accomplished. But you know those never end. Um, you, you know you, you win an event one weekend and you wake up on Monday morning and you got to do it all over again. Right? The the joy sort of sort of subsides as far as as how it relates to success. For me, the most gratifying part of my work is when athletes find fulfillment in what they do prior, you know, before achievement or, you know, whether or not they achieve something, if they feel fulfilled daily, um, I feel like I've done my job. A lot of us assume that we're not going to feel good about what we do until we succeed. And what happens is we go our whole careers banging our heads against the wall, trying to achieve a certain goal. And then maybe if we do achieve that goal, one, it's never as good as we think it's going to be. And two, like I said before, you wake up the next day and you're on to something else. So I really believe in this idea that as athletes and performers, we need to find fulfillment prior to finding achievement. Otherwise, it's going to be a really long haul in a very sort of disappointing you know, career. So anytime I, I, I hear from athletes that they feel great about what they're doing, they're enjoying practice, and they've played games where they've lost, but they felt great, like teaching athletes how to lose as opposed to win. Um, those, those are really big sort of moments for me and, and, and sort of keep me going. And, and I find that to be really fulfilling for myself as well.
0: Yeah. And I mean, not to get cliche, but it seems like you're talking about the, you know, it's about the journey, not the destination, you know, about the internal validation, not necessarily the external rewards of achievement um, kind of when you're going through a process. That's exactly what it is. And I think this goes for athletes who
1: play at the highest level for their living. Uh, it, those rules don't change, you know, finding, that type of fulfillment. So, you know, like I said, we're geared as humans to, to go the opposite way. We're not going to feel fulfilled until we do something. I try to flip that around and help athletes find fulfillment prior to that achievement. And usually good things happen in that, in those circumstances.
0: All right, Greg. Um great stuff. Uh what do you uh want people to know about? I know they can follow you on Twitter at GC3Greg. Um your web website is mindfulmindset.com. Um anything you got coming up? Anything you want people to know about?
1: Yeah, no, I mean I think that those are great places to sort of keep track as to what's going on. I have a couple uh doing an online course that's coming out uh re- we're re-releasing it in a couple weeks and uh, a couple articles and a couple magazines, but all that information will uh be coming out through my uh Twitter feed, I guess, is probably the best place.
0: All right, Greg. Um, well, if there's nothing else, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And it was really interesting hearing your perspective on all these sports psychological issues. Yeah, thank you, Robbie. I enjoyed it. And uh, best of luck with the podcast. Thanks. Well, make sure to follow Greg, as I said, on Twitter at GC- GC3Greg and his website, mindfulmindset.com. Now, let me bring in Christopher Tyler. Chris is the creator of SE in America. He writes for ESPN Australia, was a producer for Sirius XM Radio's Boys of Down Under, and recently told me that he accepted a part-time job with Sirius SiriusXM. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Robbie. Pleasure to be here. So, Chris, in my first few podcast episodes, I've you know, talk, talked a lot about my frustrations with the Celtics this season, the underachievements, the, the poor chemistry at times um you know who's to blame brad stevens the young guys Kyrie. you know this season has really been a season of underachievement and as i talked about in kind of in prior podcasts they really have not been that likable as a team what have you seen from this team um so far this season uh from your perspective well i think you hit the nail on the head firstly
2: since brad stevens has actually become the coach of the Celtics, I think this is the first time that i've actually underachieved. That's what we've loved about Brad Stevens since he took the helm as the head coach. Every team that he's had throughout the years has overperformed and he's gotten better each year in the job as well. But this is the first team that we thought, okay, now we really do have enough talent to make that one true run in the East. LeBron's gone. This is our year. And the fact that it's not happening is incredibly frustrating. And the, I guess a lot of that frustration spawns from the fact that the team just doesn't seem to be trying. They obviously got chemistry issues. That's coming from Kyrie Irving's side predominantly, I think. The fact that he handles himself in such a way in the media is very problematic throughout to, to the entire team. But as well as that, the entire team as a whole just seems uninterested. They seem unengaged. They're unwilling to sacrifice their own game. We haven't seen this from a Celtics team for a long, long time. They always played as a team. They always played Brad Stevens' way. That was the thing we liked about Brad Stevens is that you could tell that the team was a Brad Stevens run offense and a Brad Stevens run defense. It was a Brad Stevens system. And now there doesn't seem to be a system anymore. Everyone's playing for themselves. Everyone no no one really wants to buy into the concept. And it's really strange. There's no creativity offensively anymore. There's no urgency defensively, which we haven't seen in a long, long time for a Celtics team. That it's kind of become a situation where the hunters have become the hunted and they're sacrificing the rest of their herd in the entire process. They're like the humble, hardworking, middle-class man who wins the lottery and then divorces his wife, leaves his kids and moves town. It's a kind of bizarre situation because we had so much hope for this team and then all of a sudden, and things could still turn around obviously. We still got the playoffs coming up and we'll obviously make that. We won't have home court advantage for the, the entire playoffs unless there's some sort of upset. So there still is time to turn it around, but for the most part, it's been a miserable season. Thank God that the Lakers are a dumpster fire this year; otherwise, I don't think I'd be able to to handle this season. That's the only thing that's kind of keeping me engaged, to be
0: honest. Yeah. So the Celtics, it's tough because you know Kyrie's talking about how they're going to flip the switch in the playoffs. You thought that after the All Star break, once everyone comes together, figures it out, takes a step back, then they could get on a run here and really produce like that we thought they could and play together like we thought they could before the season now they've lost I believe it's five out of six they're in fifth place currently now two and a half back with the 76ers where they were just tied with the Sixers uh it seems it seems like a few a few days ago um but you know you you, you meant you mentioned it I, I just think the biggest thing with this team is is the one-on-one play and and not the team basketball and I think you saw it against the rockets last uh, last night and you know Celtics lost to the rockets and they were down by i think 26 28 maybe at one point it was embarrassing the the crowd was booing which you don't see a lot from Celtics fans and it, it really seemed like the low point of the season and they've had some low points but just the fact that this team—it just—it's the isolation basketball. It's guys taking turns. Whether it's you know, Jason Tatum, as I mentioned before, take going one on one. I thought he was terrible last last game against the Rockets, and I think he deserves a lot more criticism. Um, you know, whether it's you know Jalen Brown actually played well, but there are certain certain guys. It just doesn't seem like this team is coming together. Um, but we'll have to see. But how, from your perspective, who's who do you think is to blame the most? Um, for the underachievement this year? I mean, obviously, you have to put it all together. You got Kyrie, you got Brad Stevens, you got the young guys, you got Gordon Hayward underachieving, but from you, if you had to go with one guy, who, who, who does it start with? So first I'll say, I've, I've always loved Brad Stevens. I think
2: he's a fantastic coach, probably top three coaches in the NBA, if not higher than that. I don't play, place the blame on him at all. I think that the fact that he's not really willing to experiment with lineups or anything like that has been a little bit detrimental to the team. The fact that guys like Semi Augelet aren't part of the lineup. He hasn't played for the last two days. DMP CDs the last two days or two games, I think that's a big mistake. I'd love to see more of Semi. I'd love to see more of Rob Williams. I'd love to see more of Wanna Maker. I'd love to see more of these guys. Obviously it's hard to get minutes into so many players. And I think that's a lot of where the issue stems from in the first place. The fact that the team is so deep. So there are some things that I think that Steven should be held accountable for, but saying that, I would say 80% of the blame is on Kyrie. The way that he's been handled ha- handling the season is frustrating for us as um, supporters, and I don't know how frustrating it would be if you're his teammate. The fact that he's calling you out night after night and saying all these things about how he's the leader of the team and other players need to learn how to play like he did and take a left to roll and all that sort of stuff. It's it's completely detrimental to the way that the team culture is supposed to be. And I think a lot of that has to do with him. Obviously, he's still playing very, very well. He's still our best player. He's still our go-to guy. He's still our crunch time player. But the fact that the chemistry issues are our number one concern, and I think the chemistry issues stem from him, he's got to be given the biggest blame in this whole season so far
0: yeah I agree just the Kyrie Irving nonsense on a day-to-day has has become tiring and it's it's fun when they're winning and when they're playing well together but just him saying the stuff he has to the media it just it's gone worse every day and to me it just becomes more LeBron like every day and I just think the amazing thing about this team is you know you and I we did a lot of podcasts last year and besides Gordon Hayward being back it really is the same group and it, you know, Kyrie Irving is still there. He was there last year, and yet it, it's just a total complete it's a completely different feel to last season. Um, do, you, do you mind if I read a, a tweet you had, which on February 23rd, which I thought was a great tweet, um, you know, you're you're not you're one who is always reasonable and gives a good take, never giving the hot take or an outrageous statement. So I so when I saw this from you on Twitter, I, I definitely saved it for the podcast. So on February twenty-third, I'm not sure which if it was probably after a loss, you tweeted. I've always been a guy who has rooted for the core team over the home run trade. I think I've finally changed my mind. We need a big splash trade this offseason so we can give this team the overhaul that it needs. So Chris, going forward here, what are you seeing about this group? Obviously, if they play together, they can get it going. But you know, from from that tweet right there, and I don't know if you stand by it, but it seems like you're not very confident in the group they have that they're going to be able to figure it out.
2: Well, it might be one of those situations where it is just really an addition by subtraction. If we get rid of Kari and we know we play better without him, maybe that's the kickstart that we need because I do like a lot of the young pieces that we have. But when you're seeing these guys who have so much talent and we've been building up these assets year after year, we've been very, very patient. Ainge has been waiting to pull the trigger on that big time trade for a long time, waiting for the right moment. And now it's like, well, we've built up all these assets and it hasn't worked. So we've got to something, – something has to change, whether it is a big trade or whether we just get rid of Kyrie and try to figure something else out. I don't know what the plan is. But if you have a look at, you know, the five, five of our most important players, you've got Kyrie who's been a big mouth all season. Him and LeBron deserve each other, quite frankly, at, at this stage of their careers. JT's still feeling the effects of his early season Kobe-itis. <laughs> the fact that he's taken like the long-range 2 early on the season, he's still kind of coming out of that. JB's inconsistent, but looking a little bit better more recently. I like the fact that he's playing off the bench. Um, I've always loved him as a player. The fact that he seems to be more comfortable coming off the bench, I really like. I don't care that he's not in the starting lineup. He seemed to have found a place there, and I like that. Haywood is as aggressive as a snail at the moment. He had that really good stretch just prior to the All-Star break where he finally looked to get some confidence, was finally looking aggressive, but then he's completely fallen off a cliff and since the All-Star break, I think he's averaging, what, three or four points a game or five points a game, something like that. I don't know where that confidence has gone. Morris has fallen into a hole as well. So all of these guys, no one, except for Al, I think Al is is one of the guys that escapes pretty much all blame. Everyone else has something that we can blame them for. And I guess a lot of that tweet was was sent in anger because, it is just frustrating to watch this team play the same way over and over again. You know, the whole saying about how if you do the same thing over and over again, expect a different result, that's the definition of insanity. I feel like this team is making me insane because of the way that they've been playing recently. So I just wanted to mix something up, but I don't know what it's going to be because at this stage, it looks like Kyrie won't resign, which means that we won't go for AD or I hope we don't go for AD. Um, And that just means that we can kind of maybe stick with this team and just get rid of Kyrie and bring someone else in. But I don't know who that someone else is because if you're saying that you want to get rid of Kyrie, who else do you then bring in that point guard position? I don't want Marcus Smart playing the point guard position. I think Rozier has really played himself out of that starting point guard position. Last year, he looked like he could have been a lock if, if Kyrie was to leave. But he's really struggled this year and he's probably going to be asking still for more money than anyone in the organization thinks he's worth. The only decent free agents that we may be able to squeeze under our salary cap may be someone like a Ricky Rubio or, or Dragic, but both are, are decent players, but leave a lot to be desired. They've got a lot of holes and probably are still going to be too much. D'Angelo Rosso would have been perfect to come to us, except he's played himself into a massive contract over the last few months. There aren't a lot of young point guards out there, defensive-minded point guards that I think would be attainable. The closest young point guard that kind of even a little bit intrigues me is Chris Dunn and that's when you get to that name you know that's kind of an issue you know there's not a lot out there maybe the guy that we look for is someone like Shane Larkin we bring (laughs) him back we know he can play in the big games you mentioned that this team is largely the same as last season we don't have Shane Larkin this season maybe he's the point guard I'm being somewhat facetious but I don't actually know how facetious I'm being to be honest with you if we can bring someone like him in maybe that kind of balances out the roster a little bit but look I've gone back and forth on that big trade since I've I've uh, that big trade idea since I tweeted it out but something does have to change whether it's something as big as letting Kyrie go or, or making a trade somewhere else I don't know but something definitely has to change
0: yeah I'm with you and I'm with you on the tweet um know yeah, I think most people would would be with you on the tweet you know with with how this team has looked there's there's not a lot of ways where you can get better and obviously Gordon Hayward is one guy where you know he has had good shooting performances but all year the explosiveness um the ability to get to, to finish at the rim uh those things he's not the same Gordon Hayward and you know maybe he'll get there maybe he won't that that obviously would be one guy where they can improve for the future um but overall I mean you know as we said they have a lot of talent they're these young guys are only going to want more shots like Rozier and Brown and Tatum as they get going even more into their NBA careers. So it's going to be interesting to see. I think one guy who hasn't had, who people have not really talked about a lot, who I think actually deserves some sympathy, is Danny Ainge. And you think of the job Danny Ainge has done, and I guess if there's any way to critique maybe he doesn't have enough, quote, role players on this team to kind of get a rebound or play defense. I mean, I don't know, you talk about Semi Ojale, he's probably a guy who would do that. Um, but you look at the job Danny Ainge has done just for years since they got the big three and then he got the drafts for Smokewind and then they're rebuilding and then they did multiple drafts again and again and again to then acquire these young guys and then to sign Kyrie Irving to get to a point where they got to game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals last year and then to take a step backwards and then to think where do we go from here has got to be a very frustrating way to look at it for, for Danny Ainge because Really, up until this point, everything's gone according to plan, and this is really the first year where his the genius of Danny Ainge, it hasn't really worked out for them with this group. I think I agree, but also at the same time, I place no blame
2: on Danny Ainge for what this team... Oh, has, I don't either. Has, or ...hasn't accomplished this season, just like the situation with Brad Stevens. I'm very confident in our front office, as everyone should be, because of what they've been able to build over the last few years. I think a lot of this is just due to the chemistry issues and a lot of that, I think, again, is due to what Kyrie brings to the team. Like you said, last year we were playing hard. A lot of these guys had the right amount of shots. They were happy in their roles. Kyrie comes in and we just don't seem to mesh as well. We don't play as hard defensively, we play selfishly offensively. And it's just a frustrating team to watch. This is the first time in a long time, by the way. So I watched the Rockets game last night on delay. I didn't watch it until last night. And it has been years since I've played this game where if we're 10 points behind, I just put on the old fast forward button. That was a game we used to play a lot like years and years ago, but not for Celtics games. This was just for if I was watching college games or games I wasn't interested in. If it was 10 points to the margin, I would you know, fast forward it. I haven't done that for a Celtics game in a long, long time, if ever, and I have started doing it in the last couple of weeks. That's how you know that this team is hard to watch because I legitimately just want to fast forward through a lot of the game.
0: Yeah, that's never good. <laughs> never, never, never a good thing when you're when you're down by by like twenty eight, uh, when you desperately need a bounce back win. It just, again, you know, hearing the boos at the TD Garden, I, I think it's very clear that Boston has you know, had is had enough with his team.
2: I don't, I don't care if you play hard, and I think this is the case with everyone in that stadium and every Boston fan as well. We don't care if players play hard and they're just missing shots because eventually those shots will fall, and we've seen. Recently, the shots just aren't falling for this team. But it's when you're missing shots because you're not playing like a team that gets me and you and every other Boston fan really pissed off because the fact that you're missing shots isn't just the fact that it's an anomaly. You're going to get those times. But you're missing shots. This team is missing shots because they're not running a proper offense. They're not trying hard enough. And that's really showing up. That's what everyone's pissed off about. Now I'm very against booing teams. I still won't boo this team. I'll, I'll never boo a team that I support. <laughs> never never have, never will. Saying that, I don't care that the Boston fans did it because it's all about effort and this team is just not showing any effort whatsoever.
0: Yeah, you're right on there. I mean, you know, I, Celtics fans in particular, they usually don't they don't boo poor performance. They boo lack of effort and selfish play, and that that really is the <laughs> That that's the key with this team. It's it's selfish play and lack of effort. And if you're going to do that on a consistent basis, Boston fans are going to let you hear it. So, Chris, as we as we end this podcast on a positive note, <laughs> going into the playoffs, what what well, in best case scenario? Because again, you know we talk about all these negatives, right? And it's very easy to do it. And I'm not optimistic about this team, but again, you know they have a seven game series. If they do get it together, they can go very far. So, I guess. You know, prediction-wise, it, it's hard to predict. You know, the, the, the Bucks are tough. The Raptors are tough. Uh, the Pacers are playing well. You know, I think we have the 76ers number, But but again, you know, it's the playoffs. How, how far do you think this Celtics team can go in the playoffs? And again, I know it's an impossible question given they've lost five out of six and just look absolutely terrible right now. I think that Kyrie was right. And by the time that the playoffs come over, we could figure it out. In
2: best-case scenario, even though we've been – kind of crapping on them over the past whatever fifteen minutes or, or however long we've been talking for, this team can still get to the finals, I think. I think they have the talent for it. If you have a look at the seating at the moment, if we finish fifth, which it looks like we're going to finish, we're gonna have you'd say probably paces at this stage. I think by the time this the season ends, paces will be fourth, 76ers will be third. That's a relatively easy series considering they won't have Ola Depot. And over the course of seven games, they could beat us in one game, in a single game. But over the course of seven games, I think our coaching and our star play will get us over the line in that series. And then that's when it's going to be an issue because that second round will most likely, if not guaranteed, would be against the Bucs. And that's where it's going to be harder. Giannis has gotten better since last year. They've got a lot more role players since last year. They've got a lot more shooters playing around Giannis than they did last year, and they still took us to seven games. And so I think that that's going to obviously be our biggest hurdle. But we have the confidence, and we still do have the star power in order to get past them. So even though that second round is going to be the toughest for us, I think if we pass that, then you know the the world is our oyster. I think if we make the finals, we'll get smashed regardless of who we play. I think it'll obviously be Warriors at this stage. I'm thinking, but there is still a realistic or semi-realistic pathway for us to make the NBA finals. All we've got is hope, and thankfully we've got that because we haven't got much else at the moment.
0: Well, you can uh, the you can see the path is there. It's just really how how they how they play as a team as we talked about, but. Chris, th- thanks so much for joining me. You know, there's no one I'd rather vent with than you. And I, as, I, as I say in these, these podcasts, you know, it's, it's really a way to vent when your team's not doing great. So thanks so much for coming on and love. always love the input. Thanks, bro. We definitely needed that because I haven't been able to rant
2: for, uh, for a few weeks. So I'm glad that you've allowed me the platform. All
0: right. Well, it was, it was great talking to yeah, you. Make sure to follow Chris on Twitter at Christos Tyler. Um, also, make, make sure to follow his stuff on, on Sirius XM Radio and keep, uh, just keep in touch with what he's doing. Always a good follow. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to check out my other episodes on the Wicked Local North of Boston website. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rod McKittrick for the latest podcast information. Thanks so much for listening.